Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry sky, see your hand in Hopefully throughout this month, that speak to us from that book of Jonah, beyond our typical thoughts of Jonah. When I just said Jonah, anybody who knows anything about the Bible probably had one particular thought. I was in a coffee shop this week visiting with a friend. In fact, he'd come in. We hadn't planned to meet. I saw him. He's an officer here in Everett. Brett caught my attention. He said, what are you reading? And I Told him it's a book about the Old Testament prophet Jonah. Are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Brett pulled up a chair. We began to talk about our things in life and catching up and actually got into some Bible conversation. And Mimi, a barista there, came over and said, are you guys friends? I said, yeah, more and more. She said, what are you reading? And I said, well, it's about an Old Testament book. It's about a guy named Jonah. Mimi, are you familiar with that? Oh, yeah. Folks are familiar with the great story of the great fish. If God will help me, I want to preach a number of messages from the book of Jonah and not talk once about the fish. So the title of my messages throughout this month is very simple. Jonah, more than fish bait. We'll try to talk about some things that happened in that book that are above and beyond and outside. I believe where the Lord will talk to us is God will help us in understanding. I want to say again today, the last couple of weeks, I haven't shared the Word of God in a sermon fashion. We've had others of our ministers preaching. Two weeks ago, Evan, who led prayer today, ministered the Word of the Lord. And at the conclusion of that service, his good friend from work that he's been talking to the Bible about, Jerry, was renewed in the gift of the Holy Spirit at the end of that service. It was a a wonderful service. So very thankful for that. And then last week, Nick was ministering, and he shared a tremendous thought, read my mail, really challenged me with some things last week. And at the conclusion of that service, his wife, Crystal's mom, Catherine, was renewed in the gift of the Holy Spirit last Sunday after service. Very thankful for that. I say that to remind one and all, whether you have never received the Spirit or you haven't been renewed in a while, you are in the right place. My pastor used to say that the church is a soul-saving station. We can be impacted by God any place, at any time, in any location, but there's something about being in a church house with fellow believers and those pursuing God to be changed by the presence of God. Amen. What a great opportunity. So I'm going to minister from the book of Jonah. I'm not going to read a verse for quite a while. So you just pray that I actually get to the Bible at some point in time today. You can be seated in Jesus' name. Great to have everybody in the house of the Lord today. Amen. Great to have everybody here. See a number of folks I haven't seen in a while. Have on back in town. He's been in town on business and then out of town from business and back in town again. When he's in town on business, I'm so glad that he worships with us in the house of God. Uh, It's intriguing to me on Friday morning, Mike and I met over here to get some few things done at the church. And while I was kind of getting things ready, I hear Mike talking to somebody. And 
Pretty soon Mike comes inside and introduces me to Sarah. And Sarah had been walking by and asked about the church. And Mike brought her in. And Sarah's interested in being baptized. And she's here today. Great to have Sarah in the house of God. So thankful for that. My wife and I look forward to meeting with her later this week and looking at the word of God, seeing her baptized in Jesus' name. And then, uh, of course, a wonderful thing, Mike's daughter Lori's in town with us. She's on business also. Amen. Great to have her here today. Mike, you get bonus points. Most folks in church at your invitation today, all right? You are the king of the hour, man. Way to go, Mike. Amen. Amen. Great to have everyone. Uh, others are here, and I've not mentioned you. Please forgive me. Everybody is important, but I could talk all day about people. I told somebody the other night, I remembered somebody's name, and the guy said, wow, you remembered their name. I said, I am in the people business. I'm not in the pulpit business. I'm in the people business. And I think it's very important we pay attention to people. Amen? Amen. Amen. As we read the Bible... The word of God. There are numerous groups mentioned in this Bible. You read the word of God, it's pretty quick to figure out the Israelites or the Hebrews, they receive the greatest focus in the Bible as God's chosen people. But still, there are many peoples named in the Bible. You read the Bible, you'll read about Egyptians, you're going to read about Amalekites, you're going to read about Hittites and Jebusites and Edomites and Arabians and Persians, Reubenites, Perizzites, Amorites, Midianites, and the list goes on and on. Have you ever been reading your Bible and not been able to pronounce a name of one of the ites? Yeah. Lots of people, people groups, nations mentioned in the Bible. At one point in history, recorded in this holy book, the dominant people throughout the known world were the Assyrians. Between the years of 911 B.C. and 609 B.C., Assyria was the largest empire of the world. Many historians see it as the first real empire in history, the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the first to be armed with iron weapons of war. Their troops employed advanced military tactics, effective tactics that made them the most powerful war machine of their time. As such, they conquered much of the world around them. They wielded power and influence, and they were characterized by violence and thought themselves to be invincible. I'm going to give you a little warning here. I want to share some things about how violent the Assyrians were. And I'm just going to tell you, I edited out the worst reports, but the following are still fairly graphic. The Assyrians. One of kings, one of the kings mentioning one of his conquests. His name is King Ahasuerus II. I believe that's how it's pronounced. 
He boasted this of his conquests. I stormed the mountain peaks and I took them. In the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them and their blood. I dyed the mountain red like wool. He continued on, the heads of their warriors I cut off. I formed them into a pillar over against the city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. Regarding one captured leader that he overcame, he said this, I flayed him and his skin I spread on the wall of the city, the Assyrians. He wrote about mutilating the bodies of live captives and stacking their corpses in piles. Another one of Assyria's kings, Shalmaneser, he boasted of his cruelties after one of his campaigns. He talks of making a pyramid of heads in front of his city and the youths and the maidens he burned in the flames. Another king, Sennacherib, he wrote of his enemies, I cut their throats like lambs, I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string, their hands I cut off. In fact, the Assyrians were known to conquer their enemies and after they had slain, before they took their lives, they would cut off both feet, one hand and leave the other hand and then in mockery, they would shake the remaining hand as they claimed themselves as victors and as their captives died. In a campaign against Egypt, King Ahasuerbanipal said he boasted on the stakes the corpses of Egyptians hung and I stripped off their skins and covered the city walls. These people were violent and horrible and vicious. Any who would survive the destruction of their cities at the hands of the Assyrians then endured cruel and violent forms of slavery. One historian calls Assyrian history as gory and blood-curdling of history as we know. Brutal atrocities at the hands of the most predominant world-conquering peoples of their time, the Assyrians. Today we might associate or liken the Assyrians to Nazi human experimentation and mass killing. We might liken the Assyrians to the atrocities of the Khmer Rouge or Rwandan ethnic cleansing. The Assyrians were brutal, they were vile, and by one of their own king's admission, they were evil. At one point in their history, hear me, their capital city, Nineveh. Nineveh. The biblical prophet Nahum referred to Nineveh like this, the city of blood. Nineveh, that city was the capital. It was the center of one of the cruelest, most vile, most powerful, influential, and spiritually vacant empires in the world. Nineveh was that city. Knowing that, it's all the more interesting for me to read this. In Jonah chapter 1, 
verse number one. The scripture says this. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, look at verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. He told Jonah, the word of the Lord spoke to Jonah, said, go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry out against it, their wickedness has come up before me. You know, hearing, hearing that passage, critics of Christianity might respond like this. Well, of course he did. There's another example of God judging people. There's the God of the Bible threatening people. Again, it's all about God punishing people, God the judge, God the corrector, God of the Bible is mean and wants to bring judgment on people. Those are the thoughts and the words of Christianity's critics. Christianity's critics of the Lord and critics of his ways are quick to point out God's destructive judgments. Perhaps you've heard them as I have. They, they know about the judgments of the Tower of Babel. They are aware of the judgments of the flood and the judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and particularly distasteful to any critic of Christianity is the thought that the idea of God at some point would send any human being to hell. Surely that can't be the case. Critics hear the Lord's opening sentence to Jonah and they sink immediately into that rehearsed phrase, God judges people. Of course it implies this, don't judge me. The critics, to critics, this passage serves as a, another proof of something they already believe and that is this, God just wants to judge people. So where, I wonder, do critics get that idea and stay with that idea? Where does that solidify in their minds? Sometimes I wonder if critics get those thoughts from us, from believers. Some critics, indeed, have read the Bible. They have some experience with it. But in my experience, many critics are rehearsing the stories as told to them by believers. As told to them in classrooms and church houses. You see, there are times that believers get overly zealous about God's judgment. In telling the biblical accounts of the Tower of Babel or the Flood or Hell. Sometimes believers can get almost happy about judgment. Sometimes an overjoy for judgment of the wicked can express some kind of a ha-ha, we win mentality in the ears of some people. Yes, 
followers of the Lord of the Bible you get tired of the harmful effects of wickedness. But, but perhaps in excitement to have our own troubles relieved, we express some satisfaction that God finally judges wicked humanity and punishes evil. And, and we get excited about that because of what it does for us, how it frees us and helps us. After all, God is holy, He's pure, He's perfect, and by His work in our lives, we are also made holy. By His work in our lives, we are being perfected. By His blood, we're cleansed. By His Spirit, we are worked on and transformed. But that isn't so for those who don't follow God. And and if disciples aren't careful, We slip into some us versus them mentality. We we fall into some mindset of a holy competition. I'm so glad that I'm right and you're wrong. Our team is best. We are the champions. We win. And with those kinds of attitudes, believers can come across as arrogant victors. And so upon the first reading of God's words to Jonah, cry out against Nineveh. Their wickedness has come up before me. Sometimes Christ's followers can be tempted to think, of course, a city that wicked, a city that vile is deserving of judgment from a holy God. We read the first verses of the book of Jonah and we want to cheer and stop reading. All right. God is going to take care of business and set the record straight in a wicked and vile city. But if our communication of the Bible is predominantly destructive, and we share that story with some kind of received or perceived glee and satisfaction, can I remind us today that we would be communicating Self-righteousness. And self-righteousness in followers fuels Christianity's critics. I wonder this afternoon if just maybe believers haven't spent enough time expressing the complete biblical story. I mean, if judgment and devastation was the Lord's only interest, then think about it with me. He could have annihilated the city without ever sending Jonah. If destruction was what it was all about and everything that God had in mind, a prophet's message is unnecessary. Come on, we know this. Armies that are planning attacks on their enemies don't announce their attacks. Armies don't broadcast their plans of destruction to their enemies. And I submit this afternoon, if God, the God of the Bible, is only a vengeful being, he's only intent on destruction, then why send a prophet with a message into the heart of a profoundly vile and wicked city? 
If God is solely about destruction, answer me this, why were Noah and his family spared from the great flood? If God is only vindictive and mean toward humanity, then why could Moses reason with God over Sodom? Why did God send angels into Sodom before destruction, searching for at least ten righteous ones? Hear me this afternoon. The God, this holy God of this holy Bible is far from one dimension. Listen to these words from the prophet Hosea. In Hosea chapter 11, these are the words of God through the prophet. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the Most High, but they don't truly honor me. Look at verse 8. Oh, this is God. How can I give up on you Israel, how can I let you go? How can I destroy you? My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. God goes on, no, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you. I will not come to destroy, for someday the people will follow me. Can I remind us today of the fuller perspective of the God of the Bible, the humanity that is away from God, distresses God. Humanity that is distant from God tears at God's heart and it it generates his overflowing compassion and in that compassion God withholds his judgment. He withholds his destruction and he's looking for a someday when folks who don't follow him someday they will. When folks who don't believe someday Someday they will. God's compassion generates action. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 18 and 19, look what the scripture records. Again, it's talking about a people who got away from God. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers. They, they served wooden images and idols and Wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Yet, look at verse 19. Yet, he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Scripture records people leaving God. you got to love the Word of God. Never everyone in here is angelic. Not everyone in here is a perfect example of serving the Savior. Not, not everyone in here has done things right the first go-round. This book is filled with people that have done silly stuff and made poor choices and gone the wrong direction. It gives us the full picture of humanity's interaction with God. And here it's showing us that in this particular case, a group of people decided, I've had enough of God and I, I'm going to go my own way and do my own thing. People living for wrong purposes and yet the Bible says God sent prophets 
to bring them back. And, and throughout ancient history, God sent messengers like Jonah. Why? To call humanity back into a blessed relationship with himself. Throughout the Old Testament, those are the stories you find. But God wasn't satisfied with how it was working out. Sending the prophets wasn't proving as successful as he'd like to bring people back. Communicating his care and concern through others wasn't getting the job in the way that he thought it could be done, that he hoped that it would, that someday they would return. And so God, rather than sending others in the New Testament, God came himself. The Bible says God was in Christ, reconciling, bringing back the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them so that we could be made right with God. God's desire is to bring people back to himself. Jesus was looking at Jerusalem, the city he loved, the city that he loved. And God in flesh, looking at that city, said this in Luke 13, 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and you stone those that were sent to you. And then Jesus said this, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. What is that? That's poetic phrasing for saying how often I wanted to bring you back to myself. How regularly I thought about you have wandered astray and my goal and my desire is to bring you back. We can hear the Lord's powerful compassion for humanity in Jesus' last breaths in the crucifixion, he's hanging on the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. They've denied Jesus. They've betrayed Jesus. God himself came to reunite with man. Man denied him. They betrayed him. Men have tortured Christ. Men are killing him on the cross. It seems to me like it's a, a perfect time to rain down judgment and destruction on humanity. It seems like a perfect opportunity for God to be mean and vengeful, but instead, compassion rules the day. Instead, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't realize all of what is happening here. If we look to this book, it's obvious that God's purposeful reaching to wayward humanity wasn't merely public ministry. But Jesus ingrained that mindset into his 12 disciples, into his apostles. He taught them, yes, judgment will come, but it's not coming unannounced. And it's not coming right away. Long before destruction, he instructed his closest ones, we declare salvation. 
Our message is constantly of hope and a call to return to the loving Creator. Jesus taught His disciples what God spoke to Jonah. Go to that great city and tell them that salvation is possible. Go to that great city and let them know, I don't want to destroy you. I want to be reunited with you. Go and carry that message. I don't know, preacher, that seems like a stretch to me, doesn't? Come on, open this Bible here. In the New Testament, why is there a book that Paul wrote to the Romans? Because there was a man of God called by God that went to the vile city of Rome and began to preach there is a Savior that will keep destruction from coming and God wants you to come back to home. In this book, why are there books titled Thessalonians and Ephesians? Because there were followers of Christ that entered into those sin-filled cities of Ephesus and Thessalonica and they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. Why in this book are there books labeled Corinthians and Galatians? Because a man of God took a message to the wayward cities of Corinth and Galatia and he shared the kingdom with them hear me today if the holy God of scripture is only judgment then why send prophets if he's only destructive why leave heaven and come to earth and visit the entire human race if the Bible is only about judgment and bringing the hammer down why did Jesus preach grace and mercy If the Lord only despises humanity, why did He train apostles and leave them behind and send them to cities? If God's only about wiping out the human race, then why do we have this book? Why would He anoint writers to pen the words? And then why would God protect over centuries and millennia across languages and continents so that you and I have this message? Yes, it's true. You read this book, it's true. In God's order, evil and wickedness ultimately will end in destruction. Yet God makes every effort to keep us from that destruction. (laughs) Some might say, well, why... Why doesn't God just change his order? If God really doesn't want to destroy man, why doesn't he just redefine evil or forget about evil? I mean, he's the one that says what's right and wrong and what's evil and good. He can undefine it. I mean, if God doesn't want humanity destroyed, why doesn't God just ignore humanity's failures? I'll tell you why. Because we are his creation. 
and He loves us. He formed us. And because He is the Creator, He knows what's best for us. He knows what brings joy and gladness and hope and peace into our lives. As our designer, He knows how we can best operate. As our fabricator, He has in mind for you and I bigger and better things than what we would plan on our own. Even, even for peoples and people as vile and evil as Assyria. The Lord God taps Jonah on his shoulder, says, get up. Go to Nineveh. Go to the center of the biggest city, most representative of what is most wrong with your world as you know it, Jonah. Go to the middle of that city and let them know they don't have to be destroyed. To discover the heart of God... We just need to jump to the end of the prophet Jonah's records. We started in 1, 1 and 2. Look at Jonah chapter 4 and verse number 11. The last verse in this prophecy. This is God speaking. He's reasoning with Jonah. And God says, and should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left. The Lord had pity for Nineveh. Pity suggests attachment. The people of Nineveh mattered. To God. And because Nineveh mattered to God, he wanted to make sure that they knew for certain they had a choice. Early readers of Scripture looked at that phrase that they could not discern between their right hand and left and said, that must be 120,000 children who don't know their right hand from their left hand. But modern ones look at this verse in a different light and say this, there are 120,000 who are unaware of spiritual things that God intends. 120,000 who don't know what to believe. 120,000 who don't realize violence isn't the only way. 120,000 who don't realize annihilating one another and fellow peoples is not going to bring you joy. 120,000 people who were clueless to the compassion of a loving God. And so God saw the Ninevites and had pity of their unawareness and their lack of understanding. 
No, their ignorance and blindness couldn't excuse their evil, but it did elicit God's pity and His compassion and God's sadness toward Nineveh's condition affecting him. And so He sent Jonah to that great city where there was great wickedness. There's great size, there's great power, there's a lot of reasons to call it great. But God did not acknowledge it, in my opinion, because of its size or its military power. God saw a greatness that was yet to be. God saw a greatness that had yet to take place. Because one man's voice in the middle of 120,000 unaware of God's compassion. The Bible says, citywide, they went to their knees calling on God. Throughout, from east to west and north to south, they, they went down and put on sackcloth and ashes and said, God, if you'll hold off, don't kill us. We'll turn around. We'll make a change. You see, when God said that great city, I believe it was a prophetic word of what could happen if people believed. In this service today, if there are any here, perhaps you've believed Perhaps you thought, perhaps you've been living by the assumption that God is just against people. And in particular, you've thought He's against you. Perhaps the enemy's lies have caused you to believe that God only is an angry judge. I pray you would know the truth of a holy God today. That he desires the very best for every individual. Any this afternoon in the sound of my voice, perhaps inadvertently, by accident, unintentionally, you have wandered into an attitude of it's us versus them. Saints versus the sinners, the disciples against the lost. I challenge you to hear the call of our gracious Savior. He says, go to that great city and tell them they have a chance. Go into the middle of what you think is wicked and vile. Step into the center of what looks destructive and violent and carry the message of a loving God that says you don't have to be defeated. You don't have to be unknowing. You don't have to die in this state. God is in favor of you. I preach to disciples and believers today. Let's not become fixated on the problems of our cities. Let's not become fixated on the evils in Everett or Lake Stevens or Muckleteal. Let's not get stuck on the wickedness of Snohomish and Marysville and Linwood. 
And I pray today by the action of a powerful and holy God that minds and sets and ideas and viewpoints will be transformed today. Instead, we look at our cities with the eyes of a gracious God and we see the city that God sees. We see the great city as God sees the city. You stand with me in this place today. Our praise team is going to sing about God of this city. And I'm asking each one of you, regardless of your understanding or knowledge or experience with God, I'm asking you to talk with God about this message. If any point or more than one point has challenged you, it's caused you to think, it's touched your spirit here today, I'm inviting you to pray. I'm inviting you to have a conversation with God. How do I do that, preacher? I'll tell you, you do it the same way you have a conversation with people. If it helps you to focus, close your eyes. If you feel like you want to acknowledge His greatness, perhaps raise your hand as a symbol of surrender and acknowledging and worshiping God. Simply have a conversation and tell Him, Lord, I, this, this talk to me today and I, I need to deal with this. If you're here today and you desire God's compassion, would you open your life to His love and compassion? Would you invite Him to minister today? Do you need to see your city differently in this house today? Would you begin to talk to God about your city, where you live? Would you invite God to correct your vision in this place today in the name of Jesus as they sing? Come on, talk to the Lord. You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of the series or join us online at livingfaithministries.church.